Welcome to Portal Talks, Episode 8, with your host, me, Kyle Waugh. Today on the show, we've got a special guest, Matthew Uehara. He's a strength and conditioning specialist based out of uh, Los Angeles, California, where during the off-seasons, he's helping out and training a lot of Olympians, NFL, MLB players, really just high-level athletes. So it's great to just and a true pleasure to have him on the show and be able to pick his brain in terms of uh, language, epigenetics, and what really sets these athletes apart, as well as his own training models. Uh, so as always, the show is brought to you by Wall Personal Training, where I will help you with anything posture related, anything rehab, uh, fitness, whatever it is, I got your back. So check out the site, wallpersonaltraining.com. And Without further ado, let's get into the show. All right. Excellent. They were rolling. Um, all right. So let's just kind of jump into it. Um, do you prefer Matt or Matthew? Either or. Whatever rolls off your tongue better. <laughs> gotcha. Um, yeah. I'll call you. We're friends now, I guess. I'll call you yeah. Matt. <laughs> Perfect. Um, and then how do you pronounce your last name? I'm going to butcher it, I feel. So um, the, the true Japanese way of saying it is Uahara. But um, a lot of people kind of blend it with an Irish pronunciation. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like O'Hara. But uh, <laughs> any, any way that you want, uh, O'Hara seems to be the easiest. Gotcha. Yeah. I still feel like I'm going to butcher that. It, Matt. it means uh, field of fish. <laughs> gotcha. Well, hey, my last name, Wa, means foreigner. So. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, well, I don't really know who came up with that one. but <laughs> Yeah. Someone down, you know, back there just did not like us, I guess. But <laughs> um, all right, so we have uh, Matt Uahara. Yes. As best as I can do uh, on the show today, Portal Talks. Um, yeah, man, I've been following you for quite a while and just your content. I actually found it through when I really got introduced to PRI based principles and just like watching your moves and I feel like you have a great blend of different styles and how you, it just, your posts are very nicely put together and the way you move is just excellent. And it's crazy to me how, I don't know. It's just, it's an interesting, I'm super happy to have you on the show and just kind of talk to you and see like what your perspectives are um, with everything and training as, and even rehab. Um, so we'll just kind of jump into it and who are you and what do you do, man? Yeah, no, I appreciate that a lot. Um, my name is Matthew O'Hara. Like you said, uh, I'm a strength and conditioning coach here out in Los Angeles and primarily I work with athletes during their off season. So like once the season's finished, they'll take a couple of weeks off or so, and then they come in and see me and I'll, I'll take them all the way up until training camp, which, uh, this year's been a little interesting. You know, we've had a little bit longer off season than we'd like to have had, but um, I'll do it for all sports, but primarily I, I, I dropped football recently. So I'll do it primarily for baseball, basketball, and hockey. And then every four years or so, we'll do some of the Olympians too. Gotcha. So you yeah. are more of the professional level, correct? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, I have very few people that aren't uh, training for some sort of event or competition. Gotcha. 
that's awesome mm -hmm. so you're yeah yeah that's like the pinnacle of like where i feel a lot of strength and conditioning uh specialists want to be at um yeah so, it's fun <laughs> yeah i'm sure it's yeah especially coming from it's always fun when you get an athlete and they're just like ready to go and work hard and they are at that like higher level and it's i've had the opportunity to train a couple and also take them through a rehab process and it's it can be very rewarding um and it's just a whole nother it's almost intimidating at times especially like just starting out you're like man this has an animal like <laughs> it's yeah the crazy. stakes are high exactly yeah. um so i guess when we're talking about you know you're at this like higher level um what sort of i mean we already mentioned pri but do you have any other methods or things that you study that you apply with these this population yeah um i've studied dns as well as far as like you know training systems go i've studied uh, dns pri i've done some stuff with uh, frc as well um so i have those and then personally uh, i have both a martial arts background i um have recently kind of delved into doing some more like calisthenic type of stuff so a lot, I, I just like it because the arm balances are fun but then you always take these um kind of little nuggets of information and you can see where you can apply them uh at, in your business and then i um have uh I, I used to play basketball uh in high school and i did it at img academy so it was it was nice it was a pretty high level uh, of competition and i got to learn a little bit at a young age about how pros kind of conduct themselves and i think it set me up really really well for uh, what i'm dealing with now mm -hmm. and uh, so yeah those those i take all of that information and then i try and blend them into one philosophy and i, I really some methods are better at certain times than, than others uh, and so you you get to basically bias it any way you'd like especially if you're running your own business <laughs> definitely I, yeah i think it's you know i've had the opportunity to hang out with some pretty smart guys and they're looking at it the same way it's just like hey you have these different principles and you have this background but it's really meeting the person where they are and being able to give them what they need at that point in time and then also yeah. build it out for the long term you know what's right for them right now may not be right for them down the road and it's going to have to change yeah absolutely and and i know this is kind of like a little bit out there but to be honest um my father was probably one of my biggest training influences that i've ever had he is an ob was an obg at yn he uh, is retired now but during his OBGYN practice, he also trained a lot of dogs and he would bring these Rottweilers in from all over the world and he would train them in Schutzen, which is the police style of like bite training. Uh, he would do drug uh, uh, tracking as well. And so when I was around that uh, as a young kid, it I learned a lot about how to kind of conduct my body and how to carry myself because that's your area of communication with your dog. It's very little verbal and it's much more of this body language um, and tone of voice rather than what you're saying. And so it was really, really helpful to have that at such a young age. 
And so I think he's actually probably my biggest influence in my training style that I have today. Yeah, that's, I mean, because that's such a huge factor. I know I can, when I'm training someone, I can relay a message without even saying anything just by changing, you know, like my arm positioning or standing closer or further away from them. Yep. And I, I mean, I have a dog as well and just kind of training him was an interesting process as well. It's like the, the words you say don't even matter. Yeah. They have yeah. no idea what you're saying. And that's a, I learned actually quite a bit just in my little experience. I'm not an expert, you know, dog trainer by any means, but even just that it was a different mindset and my thought process. Yeah. That, that even like brings up, I've even thought about how different cultures who have different languages, um, just different styles of communication could even be nonverbal. And if you took that person and you gave them this all like say PRI principles, like how they could apply it, or even because I know PRI, they have a pretty large following in Japan, correct? Yes, you're right. It'd be interesting to like, I don't know Japanese, but how that information is relayed. And if you could have better outcomes with a different language or yeah it, it is i have had some experience uh with people that speak spanish and know english i've had experience with people that speak very little english english and japanese actually um i've had experience with kids too that necessarily wouldn't get uh all of the information that you're throwing at them as well so that is very much so where you rely on body language um you, you rely on showing a lot and you have to be a good mover yourself because um, you're their best example and, and what they're attempting to mimic. And they can go through those patterns within their head before they ever try them themselves. And if you're a good example there, then it, it builds this bridge in which you can kind of communicate. Yeah, definitely. And I guess that's um, kind of in touch too, right? Yeah. And that's a huge one as well. And, I've definitely, I've had experience, especially with Spanish speaking populations and it's all nonverbal communication. Yeah. And, you know, we try to have fun, but it's touch, you know, feel this X, Y, and Z. And like you said, just showing. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's a, it's interesting because really training all that, it, that's really all it is, is it's just forms of communication. In my opinion, it's. You're right. And, there are all these different iterations, right? Exactly. And the better you're able to, and that's even, I've talked to some other folks and it's interesting to think about, there's all kinds of different definitions for the same thing we're seeing, even like a left AIC pattern. Um, there's other like Z health. Uh, I'm sure DNS, they talk about them in like stress patterns. Yeah. It would be, and I think Michael Mullen actually does a really good job of that. He sometimes makes some posts online where he'll say, well, I could say it this way, or I could say it this way, or I could say it this way. And I really appreciate that because I think that in a world of, of everybody trying to be so specific and sell their product, it's nice to have those few people out there that do exactly what Michael Mullen does and and shows how they're all saying the same thing, guys. Um, this is There's nothing special about it, but what is special are these principles. Mm -hmm. And here's how we can move forward. Exactly. And that's, 
I think that's where you can definitely tell the difference between a good trainer and a great trainer or a good therapist and a great therapist is they're basing everything off of principles versus just completely buying into an, a method. Mm-hmm. But, and I guess that kind of goes into the next question. I mean, you were talking about how these different, well, let's backtrack because I still want to stay on the language piece because I think that's super interesting. Um, do you think we would be more as an industry, it would be more beneficial if we took all these definitions and we just labeled it as one primary thing and we had a word for it or do you think that would be better for training in the general population as a whole or do you think it's better to have more options and different ways to explain it as a stress pattern as a left AIC or a PEC and an anterior tilt of a pelvis? Yeah, I've actually thought about that a lot, and I agree with you. I I think that, yes, we would benefit not only as a field, but we would benefit the public that we are attempting to communicate with, that everybody's saying the same thing um, and agreeing upon terms. And then you can get a little bit more um, artistic with your explanations. But I think at the baseline level, everybody has to agree upon what terms mean. And uh, so I've been doing a lot of writing and uh, over the last about eight, nine years now, and I still haven't put out any of it, but a lot of it is going on. The the, uh, point that you brought up is how do I create a language in which we can all start from first principles and, and work our way forward and logically proceed down this path here and now I can bring up a term called acceleration or I can bring up a term called gravity and we all agree upon what those things mean as opposed to just your subjective take on it and then you go to another system and they have another subjective take on it Um, so I I have been working on that for a very long time and I I know I'll take a lot longer still but I 100% agree with you I think that it will our industry as a whole will improve if we could do that. And then I think the people that we are attempting to help will um, benefit as a symptom as well. Yeah, definitely. And that's what I've thought as well. Um, Thinking we should become more, it's the same thing as strength and conditioning principles. I wish a lot of this, and I assume it just takes time and as an industry, we probably need to get out of our own way Yeah, in a lot of that. But it does seem to, even as I've gone through mentorships, it's almost as though we're telling people, yes, you want these principles, but you're even developing your own methodologies in some way and what makes sense to you. Mm-hmm. It could go either direction. I think, like you're saying, we should have that streamlined language and... Mm-hmm everyone should apply it. But I do think that, you know, I have Susan and Lucy over here and I explain a principle one way and Susan gets it right off the bat, but Lucy's over here right over her head. Yeah. And I do, I do think, I guess that does go along with what you're saying. We just need to establish a baseline language across yeah, you the have board. a blueprint. 
and then you can have your artistic freedom because some people will understand what you're trying to say in terms of music. Some people uh, understand it in terms of uh, biomechanics. And, you know, that's what I think you're getting at. Yeah. Absolutely. I 100% agree. And kind of the model that I've been working through in my head uh, is starting at the beginning. So I want to start with physics and I want to establish those terms first. And then I want to work my way into um, chemistry and then work my way into biology and then work your ways into evolution. And then we start talking about human movement later on. Mm -hmm. But I think if you can work your way through that, um, logically, there are no missteps. And then every single point um, along the way, you are following terms that meant something at a very, very deep level to begin with. And all the steps that follow are reliant upon that term, meaning that definition. Because that definition is very important. Definitely. It sounds very similar. Have you ever listened to, or um, listen, I always listen to books on Audible. Have you ever read, I'm still making my way through it. I'm trying to look up the title right now. Um, Cosmo Sapiens. No, I haven't. I think it's good. It's good. It's very dense, but it goes through, it literally starts with the Big Bang. Yeah, and I agree. And it goes all the way through and it's diving into physics and just establishing principles of how the universe works mm-hmm. as we know it. And then it's, it starts, you know, so vast and so huge. And then it just starts getting narrowed down to the point of evolution and talking about biology and then creation of life on earth or life or earth first then life on earth and then it's as i'm getting through it it, like i said it's a really big book and then it starts to talk about humans as a species and then how we developed and where we come from and then gets into language and it's just like meta analysis on every single topic getting toward where we are today yep that's exactly what we need as a field. Um, yeah. I think we're talking about terms that we don't necessarily know the definition of, and we're throwing around these these sayings and these phrases, but we, uh, as the speakerphone or as the, as the producers, as the source of that information, we don't really understand what we're saying. So I think as a whole, this whole field needs to take a big gigantic step back and understand the very basics first and then we can start to agree upon uh, how to move forward because that's what all the other sciences do to begin with um science all other sciences if we're looking at physics biology all these other very deep um, sciences they have a lot of disagreements and arguments about how to describe certain events in the world and they're not because they're trying to, well, well, some are, but for the most part, it's not to establish their point of view. It's so that they can come to an agreement about how to um, understand what is really going on out there. And I think us dealing with humans and thinking we can, because as you know, any kind of stimulus that we give the body will create change and change isn't that um how am i going to say this 
it's it's not that fascinating meaning that it's you're not that special if we can create change in the body but creating change in a desired path and um going through very methodical uh, steps to to reach point b from point a that's hard to do and all those other sciences out there they have used the scientific method as a means to come to terms about how to move forward but for us when we deal with humans we, we have so much freedom because the body contains so much complexity that we can create change and think we're doing great things but it's just because you provided a different stimulus it isn't necessarily that your method was sound and logical all the way through and, and i do 100 percent think that we need to figure out a way to, to come together and achieve that which is why I have gravitated so much to things like PRI, because I do think that they are attempting to create objective testing, um, objective languages. And although it may seem complex when you enter into it, I think it has to be because you're trying to describe complex systems and very integrated systems that all are reliant on one another. Mm -hmm. It's, two points one there's i'll paraphrase but neil degrasse tyson talks about a similar thing and that you're describing with all the other sciences and what they've done is our theories and our research and our evidence that we find should bring us closer together to find a point of this is true this is what's happening whereas i think fitness falls victim to marketing and people just trying to make a living yeah and that people want to prove their point so much that it's done nothing but dilute the industry yeah we don't have a high enough bar to get into our uh, system right. yeah and you're honestly the first person i've heard say science <laughs> sciences and when referring to fitness and i would even say rehabilitation and therapy mm -hmm. and it really is it's its own whole field i mean you look at the medical field and they do the same thing like you're mm -hmm. describing which is coming together and saying what's best for the patient and all this stuff i think it would be nice if we saw that but again, we have to step out of our own way. And I think establishing credibility goes a long way as well, that the people truly doing good things need to have a, a bigger voice. Yeah. But it's still the Wild West with rehab and fitness, in my opinion. It's, we only haven't got our shit together since the past 20 years. Yeah. From what I can tell. So it's, it's interesting where things are going. <laughs> yeah, my, my father was, uh, my father's so funny. Like for being Asian, you would think that we're all up on the latest technology and stuff, but he's a little behind. <laughs> he just learned how to text about a year ago. Oh, man. Um, but <laughs> but it, he's, he's so funny. He brought up this to me the other day. He's like, Matt, have you ever heard of this term called FOMO? It's, he's like, it, it's fear of missing out, right? And I think that's what our field 
really suffers from is that we have this fear of missing out on the latest trend of capitalizing um, financially on the latest gadget or or movement or, or system and we jump so quickly rather than sit back and wait a little bit and, and think through the process and say, okay, is this really the right direction for me to go on? Um, we don't have great enough radar detectors. And I think that only comes from doing some more like personal work. You have to really do some good homework on your own. And then it, it gives you these great sensors about where to go and what to read and um, how to alert yourself. Actually, I was reading one of my favorite books is called Map and Territory. And it's by this guy named Eliza Yudkowsky, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. And he has this great kind of line in there where he says, your power as a rationalist is your ability to be confused by fiction more than reality. And it's brilliant because if you really work yourself through in, as far as the scientific method and you really do your own homework on your own, what should happen is you're gonna create this working model in your head, right? And you're moving forward through the, your entire life with this model and the model's dynamic and it evolves. But the, the things that alert you are not the things that you would predict. They're the things that are unpredictable that sit out of the common, oh, your working model. So if I'm going into Africa and I see this, you know, orange elephant, and I've always learned that elephants, and I had this working model in my head that elephants were gray. There are two options. One, I can, I can choose to believe that, well, maybe there are orange elephants out there and they're much more common than I thought because I see one right there. And maybe um, the way that they adapt is that they have this different relationship with the sun, for example, and I can make all these fantastical things up in my head. Or I could say, no, that sits outside of my model and, and I am alerted to it because it seems like fiction to me. So knowing what I know, um, how can I now look at this orange elephant and determine whether it truly is orange or maybe it's just a little dusty um, or, you know, you go through this model and, and what will happen is that if you can approach it in that way, that whatever information you come up with, uh, whether you truly find out that there are orange elephants or you find out that, well, it was just a dirty elephant, it's going to update your model moving forward. And now your model's more powerful. And I think we uh, in our industry don't do enough of that. We see orange elephants and we believe there's orange elephants. And we, we tell ourselves these fantastical stories in our head so that we don't have to update our model. So that now orange elephants are part of the model. And yeah, the, like, I can put a crystal on your head and it makes this test do that, you know, like that, all those things. So that's where I think that we need to do our better work is, is create these, in, in his words, maps that better represent reality. It, the map isn't reality, the model isn't reality, but 
if we can continuously update it and make it closer and closer to the truth, then we can, by the time we die, be very, very happy with uh, doing our best and shaving off all the, the things that didn't belong there. Our senses are faulty, uh, are faulty to begin with, and we're just going to try our best to work our way through. Right. They're definitely biased, I would say. Mm-hmm. But that, that's where his like, statement that I thought was so brilliant, um, this, this ability to be confused is our power, by, our power as a rationalist, it, it really rang true for me. How would you apply that to, it sounds like we're viewing, we're not getting excited by the outliers. In yeah. The How would you apply that to professional athletes? Someone mm-hmm. like... Um, LeBron James, who just seems to be an outlier and, you know, quote unquote, freak athlete that just excels in everything he does in the sport, basketball. Um, I guess it would look at it as, okay, this is movement perspective. What are they doing? How are they training? Genetics, all these factors. Yeah. I'd be curious to see if how you relate that mapping and that kind of philosophy to yep. what you do. Yeah, um, when I look at humans, my, my two kind of driving forces that I have behind my vision of them are um, metabolism and uh, reproduction. I think those are the two most important things to look at. And everything else that you look at outside of that, whether it be a table test, whether it be um, whatever, Um, They are secondary mechanisms that fall out of your uh, drive to uh, maintain order, which is your metabolism, and your drive to reproduce. And everything else is secondary. So I think once you start to look at it through those lens, then you can say, okay, well, we do have these outliers, but they're not outliers in the sense of life. They're not outliers in the sense of... um, what species tend to do on the planet. They're not outliers in the sense of, sorry, they're not outliers in the sense of um, what species um, do with their lives. And they're not outliers in the sense of humans in general. But when you, after you work your way through all of that, you say, okay, what is different about these players, let's say like a LeBron James, is that maybe they have different femoral relationships with their pel- pelvis. And knowing what I know about physics, which is a very baseline science here, how would that affect maybe what I see on the table? How might that affect when uh, what I see when I videotape them moving? And then those outliers aren't really hard to deal with anymore because they just start to make sense knowing what you know at the very baseline sciences and knowing what you know about what humans tend to do and how they guard themselves or how they position themselves so that they can acquire nutrition or you know um, how they can acquire mates Mm -hmm. Um, go ahead go ahead sorry no i i like the way you're viewing it and i I haven't thrown in reproduction in there as much. I always look at it from more of a caloric standpoint, you know, what's going to save as many calories, so on and so forth. But I never would have thought about, you see LeBron James movie does a crazy dunk, something like that, or 
Yeah. <laughs> and you just break it down to calories and reproduction. And that's. Yeah. I mean, even you even go back into the act of sports. Like why are there, why are there sports? Mm-hmm. There are these, there are these massive demonstrations. They're like almost these massive peacockings right. uh, in the world. Right. And we have outliers, like you said, that do things better in certain athletic endeavors. You have people that are that better body shapes for swimming, better body shapes for pitching the baseball, better body shapes for playing basketball. Like I would never play in the NBA. I'm too short. Um, but those outliers are demonstrating themselves the best way that they can, right? And other people, whether it like let, I'll take myself, for example, my way of demonstrating myself is through the sciences, through intelligence and through my words. Maybe like I describe things more poetically. You know, those are, we have all these different ends of the spectrum, but they're all attempting to achieve the same things. Right. Is that I want in the future that my lineage goes on and I need to order myself uh, self as long as possible before I chaotically disorder um, and so that I can reproduce. And I'm going to do all these things like acquire money. I'm going to acquire um, a healthy body. You know, I'm going to acquire intelligence so that I can do those things more efficiently. Definitely. I think becoming a trainer in some ways was like a subconscious like selfishness to like maintain (laughs) better like understanding of and like i don't know homeostasis or some sort it's weird to think of it that way Um, but i think i think if we get down to the the root cause of it all like we're all selfish (laughs) we're i mean they're very i think I've had this discussion with a lot of people and I do believe that there is no such thing as true altruism in, in humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think that there is a thing called reciprocal altruism, but I don't think that there is this thing called true altruism. And even if we're looking at ourselves, like, uh, you know, you're, you do some work in the PT world and the strength and conditioning world, we have these positions that we pattern ourselves in and we get more patterned up maybe in a PRI sense, uh, a certain way, if we feel unfulfilled in any one of those categories. So if I feel unfulfilled from a nutritional aspect or I feel unfulfilled sexually, for example, then I might pattern myself up in a certain way that would read my read out on a table like a left AIC, right BC, right TMCC. Uh, if I feel like I have to maybe like uh, over uh, express myself, I might look like a PEC you know, things of that nature. Um, And I think once you start to look at it that way, those outliers don't seem so kind of rare anymore. They're just exaggerated terms of what is going on with all humans. Right. Where do you think that genetics fit into this? Do you think that it is a, my great, 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 great grandfather was more of an extension based bias we're getting mm-hmm. super deep in this like any <laughs> i know it's, some of my like gen pop are gonna listen to this and be like what the heck just happened but <laughs> let's get into it um so if i have a you know my 
way up my lineage. And I have a grandfather that happened to be in more extension-based biases and then they reproduce. And that just became something that was dominant in my lineage and what happened to work for that person. Do you see where I'm kind of going with this? Like, do you think? Yeah, yeah. So, so you're asking a little bit of like, do you think that there are structure, uh, genetically structural kind of like um, biases that that maybe kind of pass themselves on because they were successful? Um, right. And I've read a study too that even talks about how different like levels of muscle tone can be mm-hmm. be passed down essentially. Yeah. So, you can use more spinal erectors over other musculature because your great grandfather did. And I don't know how much I buy it. So the way that I I view this is that it it all depends on what type of childhood that person had. And and I'm not saying that it's completely epigenetic. What I'm saying is that um, it depends on, is it a single parent household? It depends on, uh, was the kid an orphan? Was, um, it depends, do they have brothers or sisters? Um, all those things matter. But just generally, if I was to like take a broad stroke brush over all this, what I would say is that the epigenetic type of influences, so that the nature aspect of the nature nurture type of uh, question, Um, has less of an influence early on. It has more of an influence in the embryo. It has less of an influence early on in childhood development, and it has more of an influence later in life. So you have different types of influences that have a greater, sorry, different types of biases to the nature-nurture argument uh, at different points of your life. And within the embryo, you're going to have the biggest type of kind of genetic um, kind of component to what you and I are discussing. Mm-hmm. However, what I think what happens is that once the child go, is in its early developmental years, I think the way that it learns to relate to its environment has a very, very big influence and much bigger than the genetic aspect but you can never separate them. They're always having this um, communication back and forth, right? But it is biased towards their social circle, their relationship with their parents, their um, ways of relating to stimuli, their ways of relating to stressors that they learn from their parents and their siblings. And then once they've fully developed um, physically, and now they're their own independent being that is away from their home life and now has to live their life on their own now i think you get much more of the genetic influence back end again um so you'll tend to see that in twin studies that um when they're separated and they come back together again and such so you have much more of this genetic influence later in life than you would have earlier that's an interesting point i never i've always thought just from my you know, anecdotal experience, how my home life in high school, and then you go to college. And then after college, at least for me, it was, it just like developed, like I went from being in college years where I really didn't care about learning new stuff. It was just social interactions. And I think that comes down to also brain development and boys and males. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
but after 23 to 26 it's like boom all of a sudden i'm go 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 i want to learn as much as i can and there's a huge component there it's just interesting to yeah but i think that's still too young like really? I, I, what i'm talking about like is in the late 40s 50s 60s is really? that's when i think more of the genetic influence plays um into what we're discussing right now so right now you're still very like you and I are both are still very much in this phase where our environment does matter quite a bit and what we choose to surround ourselves with does matter. And, um, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't thought about it that way. I think that is a good point, especially with, I listened to a, it was a podcast and it was a voice coach Mm. and this lady's talking about how, say you have a boy and he has six older sisters and he's the youngest of them all and the sisters put him down they say you're dumb blah 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 all this stuff he feels that he needs to now be quiet so the capability of his voice he's now soft-spoken it changes how he then interacts with people essentially even women and in just in general society Mm -hmm. and she was talking about how They'll come, this person will come to her at 30 wanting voice training and she's like what do you want out of this and the person's all soft-spoken and they can't they cannot express themselves and it's breaking out of that habit and it's something that you would never even realize that you're doing it's just been there for so long so if that yeah, can happen right exactly but if that can happen with someone's voice why can't it happen with postural positions and how someone uses musculature or someone who's not even in involved in say sports or learns movement capabilities at a younger age how is that going to affect them and positions that they utilize big time um there are there are plenty of aspects in which we'll we'll take even the professional athlete through a, a training cycle for example and we'll introduce movements in there that i know that their early development did not allow for them to do properly so they'll do it with these previous biases that that they have and you just can simply ask them the question why not do it this way and or why not think about this movement here or let's let's just stop what are you doing right now you know things of that nature you're just asking very simple questions and oftentimes they come to the same to the conclusion that they're doing it that way just because they don't know any other way it's worth you know the it is their only answer to that question and so you offer them maybe another answer or the ability to scream you know for this this person that you're talking about um you offer them that answer to the question and now they can decide for themselves which variable should I insert into my athletic capability or my athletic equation and uh, who do I want to become now? Now they have more options and they start to evolve like what you're saying is like in, in your 23, 24, 25, 26, you start to digest all this new information, right? Like you, you finally get to this point where you say, oh, there are other things that I can learn other than 
what my college told me yeah right. or rather than what's in that textbook right there rather than the homework right i think that's like a minor enlightenment <laughs> in many ways it's just the power of choice and that you can you have a choice in what you do what you say how you mm -hmm. move i think that's huge i think movement plays a huge component to it as well just having choice and expressing kinesthetically like and feeling and sensation goes a really long way and I think the brain, this is just me assuming, but I feel like the brain just eats it up. No, you're right. And um, the, the other thing that I found that's very powerful is that if you as a movement coach understand that that is a, a good option for them, maybe better than the one that they were stuck in, then you have to be very, very excited for them when they choose the right answer mm -hmm. or the, the more appropriate answer for the, the question. And you being excited and them knowing that you are this teacher of movement um, will want to make them please you more often. Mm -hmm. And not necessarily saying like you're this father figure for them, but they want to please you in a sense of they want to move better. They want to continue to uh, move more efficiently. And when they guess right, they're gonna be happy about it. There's this uh, study that was done across the NBA and you can take the, this in many different ways, but what they did is they looked at how many body contacts um, the players had amongst themselves, all the way from the, the lowest ranked team to the highest ranked team. And what they found is that the higher ranking teams had more body contacts amongst themselves. So they had more high fives, more butt slaps, more like chest bumps, you know, that kind of stuff. But you, you could obviously take that and say, well, they were winning, they had things to cheer about. But you could also take it as a, as a point of, these are guys that will get excited for you making the right decisions as far as teammates go, because they lead to more appropriate answers, which is winning. You know, they're trying to solve the other team and a way of solving them, there, there is strategy involved and decision-making matters. Just like when we're talking about human movement, it matters how you go from point A to point B. You can get there any way you want at a low level, but if we're trying to optimize movement and if we're trying to optimize it at the highest level where those split seconds matter, then there is a right answer. And appreciating them for making that answer or, or choosing that answer, it really goes a long way in them choosing it more frequently and more often. Um, so I found that study, it was very interesting and obviously you take it with a grain of salt, but um, yeah, body contacts, being happy for each other, cheering each other on, that matters. Um, and having a good training group where you have, for me, I typically have anywhere between two and four people at a time. Having the right group together matters because they're gonna push each other in the appropriate way and not get down on them like those big sisters of that um, you know, young brother. I think that, that's an interesting study. And I'd be curious to see as well the, the language they use and because language is one of the easiest ways that we can, if you're, we speak the same, we speak the same, you know, we both have experience in PRI. So we automatically, we're friends pretty much, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when a, you have a team like that who are, they're non-verbally communicating the same way, 
positive, negative, whatever it is, they're more of a cohesive group, correct? Absolutely. That takes me to my next question, which is, I personally think that when we look at, or I'm curious to see people that move in similar ways, if they would also on like a subconscious level have better cohesiveness. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a lot of my friends are very good movers. Um, they are very good movers in many different ways as well. And the way that all of us relate to one another, um, it does matter. Uh, we, there are more body contacts. There is more cheering each other on. There is more support there for failures and more, um, like what's the word for it? Uh, empathy, Mm -hmm. you know, for, for circumstances that you may come into because all of us are better at certain things than other people are. And that's even the power of having the appropriate group is that you're going to have guys, for example. So I'll give you a good example. We, we have a pitchers group basically. And one of our guys has one of the nastiest changeups in the, in the major leagues. And one of the other guys has one of the nastiest curveballs. And some of them have amazing fastballs. So what they would do is every time they're playing catch is they would talk to each other about how they grip the ball, what they're thinking about, you know, they're giving, they're wanting each other, even though they're playing on different teams to become better. And because they know that's a give and take, it's like, I'm going to become a better mover by sharing my information with other movers because I know that they're going to share their information with me. It's not this just one way street where I'm taking, taking, taking from them and I'm going to become the best mover and, you know, screw them. Mm -hmm. Well, absolutely. Even at the higher level as well, there's still, that's such a, there's only so many people at that level. And I, there has to be a community, even if you don't like one person, you're going to probably be closer to the majority of the people within that circle. So like the NBA, I imagine they've all come into contact with every player at some point. Yeah. So and the NBA, I think is one of, as far as like guys getting along, I think the NBA in general is one of the tightest groups that I've come around. Mm-hmm. Um, Baseball is pretty good, but there's so many of them. Same with that, football. I imagine. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think that basketball, at least from what I've experienced, those guys are, are kind of the tightest. It doesn't matter what team they're playing on. And obviously you have a few grudges here and there, but for the most part, they all train with each other. They, they push each other. And it's for the reasons that we're talking about. You have better training competition. You're going to get better. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think too, just the, how the NCAA with, basketball is also set up and the one and done teams I think that's may have an influence as well it's you have these star players that they play one year ball and for instance University of Kentucky Calipari unfortunately doesn't care as much about the tournament times but he wants he wants what's best for his kids and he wants them to make money and he wants them to get them into the NBA Um, sorry if anyone's listening doesn't like Calipari you're just wrong Um, (laughs) uh, but maybe because of that same mindset and just, Hey, let's get you through and get you to where you're actually making money. Like, this is what you want to do for a living. I think that may have 
I'm sure football has that to some degree, but just the vastness of the team. So, so much volume. Yeah. yeah. Like it's, even on the same team, you have offensive guys that don't necessarily hang out with the defensive guys. Exactly. It's, and, you know, even professional, you know, I look at the Seahawks and half the team will get cut. And when the season mm-hmm. starts, that's huge. Yeah. Other folks. And then it would have been, I really wish that XFO would have taken off. That would have been pretty cool. But unfortunately, all this is going on. Um, well, hey, man, so we've got about like 15 more minutes. I'd love to get into these other questions. We went down a whole other path that I did not expect. Sorry. <laughs> it's fine. This was awesome. And I've been wanting to talk to someone about the language component and how this relates in nonverbal, verbal, and what it all, where it fits. And I think this was awesome. But Okay. Let's get into, so these are kind of like my last three questions I like to ask. Um, I ask everyone, I need to figure out like, I don't know if I'm going to call them like the, I don't know, the tired three or the, I, <laughs> I got to figure out a cool little name for them. But um, so you're in a room full of all your Instagram followers. Okay. <laughs> right. That's a lot of people. Like, yeah. <laughs> and they're there to hear one thing you have to say and it's your biggest piece of advice what would you say oh god um i'd say that follow your passion because it doesn't matter what it is i think all people kind of reach the same end point if you follow your passion passion to its nth degree uh for me you know my passion isn't necessarily training. Uh, my passion is learning in general. And my learning started very broad because it has to. I mean, we don't have that um, a very good understanding of the world and you have to start at your level. You can't start you know, reading high-end calculus books. You can't start off there. Uh, you have to work your way through the process. But what I've noticed is that um, the more I work my way through, I always end up at the same point. Meaning like uh, there's this kind of fun game that you can play on, on Wikipedia is that, you know how Wikipedia has all these like little hyperlinks that you can click on. Like, so you're reading an article, it doesn't matter what the article is about. You click on a hyperlink and then it takes you to another page. Well, if you keep playing that game, every single time you play it, you end up on philosophy. It doesn't matter how many times you play it, you just keep clicking, 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 and then you're gonna end up on philosophy. And I think really that's the whole point of it, is in a sense of we're doing all this work internally on ourselves, and we follow our passion, and we keep keep clicking on things that interest us. In the very end, we're gonna come up with the story that we like to have of the world, And from that story, we do our best to pass it along uh, in the way that we would like to, to the people that succeed us, whether that be kids, whether that be students, uh, whether that be like our dogs, (laughs) Um, or it's through things like works of art or writing a book, um, doing lectures. Those are all ways of, of passing your philosophy on, but it's because you did all those other clicks that preceded it, that allowed you to say, this is my philosophy. So I think you start with a passion and then just keep clicking. Yeah, I think 
I've been reading this book called Perennial Seller, I believe. Okay. Um, and it's talking about all the great works that are out there. So art, um, literature, even just Microsoft Word for, or Office. Yeah. These things that are here and they're ingrained into a, a society, excuse me, that they just become household names. And it's talking about the true work that goes into that and where it stems from. So and when you were talking about the writing that you've been doing and how that process has gone on and how long it's taken, it just it reminded me of that. And now you're talking about this, but it's truly, it, what it's all based in is that you want this to be carried on. Yes. And if you just make something that's half-assed, what's the, what's the point mm -hmm. in the end? Why are you doing that? Is it for a quick buck? Because it's probably not going to do as well as you would hope in the beginning. So that's a, Absolutely. It's a very good book. It's perennial seller, you said. Correct, I believe. Oh, I'm gonna have to look that one up. I'm gonna put that one in the show notes. Um, let me double check that. One. Um, no, it's, I'm sure it's close enough. Yeah, per, perennial seller by Ryan Holiday. I'm about okay. halfway through. It's a very interesting book, and it, he talks about his own personal process as an author and how he goes about it, and how even just having editors and this, you have to have other people's eyes, but also know at your core what you want and what you want that to be mm -hmm. so it and it does it has a lot of like philosophy to it as well and a lot of great quotes but i think that was yeah. a great answer thank you <laughs> yeah that was excellent um so let's get into the second one uh what do you think about so you're taking a long car ride you're driving you're driving from LA, say up north or something like that. You're going to Malibu or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, what do you think about? Do you think about like breathing or you think about exercises or you think about clients or are you like diving into more, sounds like more abstract thought process? Yeah, actually, um, none of them. <laughs> yeah. So I read, I read this um, and I forget where I read it. Uh, but ever since that day, I, I've done it. Um, what it was is that it was a father talking to his son and he told his son that if you're not singing on the way to work, then you're doing the wrong thing or something along those lines. And, and what I, I agree upon, I agree that that should be something that's ingrained, whether you're singing or not ingrained within our philosophy. Again, I think it plays off of, this whole thing with passion, right? So if you're passionate about where you're going and what you're gonna do, you want to be there um, at your highest capacity. And not just because, um, not just because you're gonna do a good job, but you wanna be there at your highest capacity because there are other people that are reliant on you being at your highest capacity as well. And if you have all these things that are cluttering you in the head, and if you have all these things that you're thinking about, you're not in the present moment, and you're not there to listen to them, you're not there to have a discussion with them, um, you can't be clear and concise with your answers. So 
I like to sing on my, I'm not very good, but I like to sing on my way to work. I'll just put on some Jack Johnson, which I know most of the words for those songs. And um, it's something that's very easy and melodic. And sometimes I'll have my window down, but most of the time I just have my dog on my lap and we're, uh, we're singing the Jack Johnson. And um, it puts you in this mood in which you come to work or you come to where you want to be, uh, where, you're, where you're going to, and you're calm. And you are fully there because you've, you've had time to release any kind of tension that you've had carried with you. So yeah, I do my work outside of the car. So I'll, I'll uh, do my reading and that kind of work, my, my typing and that kind of stuff when I'm at home or when I'm in a gym like this, for example. But when I'm, when I'm there, I'm there. And when I'm not there, I'm not there. You know, I'm in my car and hanging and having a good time. And that way it prevents some road rage and all that kind of stuff too. Yeah, I, I've been experimenting with something similar and it's just, because I'm always trying to, we think we're optimizing when we're multitasking and mm -hmm. we think we're, you know, getting the most out of all of the time that we have here because that's really the most precious resource we have. So I'll sit there and I'll, you know, listen to a book on Audible. I'll listen to a podcast. Yep. And more recently, I've gone back to just silence, like just roll the windows down and just relax and focus on driving or just listening to music again. And yeah. it doesn't, and I, at first I felt guilty almost because it was, I'm not taking full advantage of it, but it's really that experience of just being there. It's almost like meditation. Exactly. Yeah, I think there's value in both, right? Mm -hmm. I think there is value in uh, listening to a podcast or listening to a book. I think there is value in doing what we're talking about here, whether it's in silence or you're singing. Um, but the value comes in you being all the way in there. And if you are driving and listening to this and you're doing it in an urgent manner because you feel like you don't have enough time on the planet um, and you have to learn it all now, then you're not making fun of the, the learning. You're not um, allowing the learning to, to come to you. You're trying to chase it always. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think it, there's value in that as well but it cannot be done in an urgent manner. Right. I, again, another book I read, it's um, Influence by, oh, I cannot remember his name. I'm always horrible with the, the names. <laughs> I'm bad with that too. I yeah. remember all the titles, but I never remember the authors. Right. Um, his name is Robert something. Um, Caldini, Robert Caldini. Okay. Uh, and he talks That's about- Influence, do you say? Correct. And I read it for, I was like, oh, I would need to learn how to sell training better. But in reality, it was way deeper than I had expected. And it got into like the psychology of making decisions. And one of the things is uh, advertisers will do is they'll create scarcity with products in order to, in competition, in order to make us not think clearly yeah. and make impulse decisions. And yeah. that's exactly where I'm going is if you're thinking of time as scarcity and you're thinking that you have to jam it full of everything, you're not going to be making 
sense of whatever information is there at that point yeah. in time. And you're I'm, leaving no time to live too. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's, it's interesting. It's been nice. Some days I'll just, I have like a 45 minute commute and I just, oh, okay. I'll just be there. Some days I'm like, I'm ready to learn. I'm ready to listen to this stuff. And, but it's taking away, I guess, the guilt piece that I used to have on myself for not smashing as much information into one day as possible. It's more just being there. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Great, man. Um, what do you think, or here, let's get to the next question. Um, what is the worst advice you've ever gotten? Worst advice received. Oh, I don't know if I've ever had bad advice. Um, other than, I'll say it this way. The bad advice that I've received has come with no uh, qualifications about why. Meaning like, it's not necessarily bad in what they're, they're saying. They could be saying something very appropriate and um, very um, um, need, uh, like uh, necessary for me to digest. However, if the information never comes with prerequisites or qualifiers or the whys, that's when I feel like the advice is, is inappropriate. Um, and, and that's, but that's become less and less as I've gotten older because what I've realized is that sometimes they'll give you this piece of information and they'll just say it at you, like uh, don't squat below 90, for example, <laughs> right? Or something along those lines. Then it's up to you if it's important to you to do the work on your own. So by having an approach, an approach like that, almost all information seems to be okay to, to hear, and then you have to decide what to do with that. However, like there's this, um, there's a way to qualify how much density uh, of information a statement has. And sometimes I feel like the worst advice is the one that doesn't contain very much information out there. Like, I mean, we're dealing with a lot of uh, political type of environment right now. And a lot of people will say these things that are, are phrases, but they don't necessarily understand what the phrases mean or they get said so often that they lose the, the density of that information because people just, it just hits them in the face so often that they just stop listening to it. However, the best advice seems to be the ones that are said less frequently with more impact and with the information necessary to go on your own to the next levels to, to discover more about that statement. So um, I, it's a hard question because I, I don't necessarily, I, I can't come up with anything off the top of my head about bad information that I've received um, or advice, sorry. But that's how I would qualify it is that, you know, saying the things that I just did right there. Right. <laughs> Looking at it from advice given without explanation. Yeah. And um, you have to decide maybe, maybe those types of people that just keep giving advice that 
they don't have a whole lot of prerequisites or qualifications behind the statement that they're saying, or they're just, they're never going to give you more than the superficial, whether those people are worth keeping around you or not. Um, you want the people that will sit there and take time with you if you want to, um, learn more about that subject matter. And then you as a, a listener have to be ready to reciprocate as well, right? Like you have to ask questions that, require them to give complex answers and then you have to um, reciprocate in a way that if they want to ask you questions about your area of expertise you're going to give that same type of effort back towards them right yeah and i think the other types of relationships that you have in your life that are just superficial um you know the whole like give you a give you like a how are you and not really care about the answer in return um, those are worth letting go right i heard can't remember the resource but it was speaking of similar things where you speak with almost elevator pitches yeah yeah, yeah. instead so it's how can i be as direct as possible but also lengthen out just a quick phrase of hey how are you and then continue with some other sort of way to it's still true, like, just get out more from the conversation and more from what you're talking about. Yeah. And I think that's, it's been something I've been trying for a while. It's tough. It's very difficult. This, it's reaction. You know, it's what we've done for so long. It's, hey, how are like, I mean, even when we got on the call, I was like, hey, how are you? Nice to meet you. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and it was and it, the most superficial even, thing. Yeah. But it is even harder nowadays as well because we have all these distractions around us like phones and like all this information that's blasting us from, you know, 10 different directions. And we must understand, okay, it, it comes time when I have a personal relationship with somebody right now and I'm having a conversation with them. How do I eliminate those other nine foci and just lock in on this conversation here? Right. You know, and, and so that's very important as a listener, as a digester of information, but also as a person that's trying to convey information too. Mm -hmm. Great answer. Fantastic answer. Well, <laughs> Matt, it has been fantastic having you on the show. Um, I, where can we find out more about you, man? Um, just my if you'd like Instagram. to be found. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Just my, the Instagram is the only thing I have. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I'm not very good on it, but uh, it is there if people want it. And I do try my best to answer things. Gotcha. Yeah. Do you have any uh, training that you do online or anything those sorts? No. You gotta, no, I don't. You got to find yeah. you in person. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm just here things. with this one right here. That's oh, all. man. I'm going to make this, this the... Uh, <laughs> Instagram <laughs> picture right there. <laughs> exactly. This is Lulu. Oh, Lulu. I always So she hangs out with me the whole time we train and yeah, that it's all in person unfortunately. No, that's fine. Hey, it's what works. And that's what you do. Um, well, awesome. Well, it was great to have you and Lulu on the show. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Hey, we'll have to do this again sometime. Um, and we'll go ahead and stop Thank you, Kyle.